Hello and welcome to Life of the School, episode 66. My name is Aaron Matthew, and I'm a biology teacher from Acton Boxford Regional High School in Acton, Massachusetts. Each episode of Life of the School, I like to sit down with a fellow life science teacher and ask them, how'd they get in the classroom? What are they currently working on? And what are their hopes for the future? This episode, I sit down with Jordan Rocket. Jordan teaches honors biology and human anatomy and physiology at Muriel Williams Battle High School in Columbia, Missouri. In addition to teaching, Jordan initiated the ACT Prep Club at the high school. In 2015, Jordan received both the Outstanding Beginning Teacher Award from the Columbia Fund for Academic Excellence in Columbia Public Schools and the Beginning Science Teacher Recognition of Excellence Award from the Science Teachers of Missouri. Welcome, Jordan. Hi. Hi, I'm glad you could uh, talk to me on a snowy day there in Missouri. It's always a snowy day in Massachusetts at this time of year, but um, I'm glad we could connect. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. I'm sure our snowy days don't compare to yours up there. Yeah, we often have dustings, I say to people, and dustings is like up to six inches. So um, oh. uh-huh. <laughs> that's uh-huh. our, those are, those are, we might have a delay if we get six inches of snow kind of deal. Wow. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so yeah, we, uh, we this has been a, an interesting uh, uh, talk that I've been trying to line up. Uh, we were talking, we have a mutual friend, Pam Close, and I know we're going to get into how you worked with Pam early in your career yes. when you got started. But uh, it was just, we were realizing that I hadn't reached out to you normally, like the way I normally discuss with people. I was talking to Pam and Pam's like, oh no, you need to interview Jordan. So oh. <laughs> I'm glad, I'm glad she was able to connect us. Well, Pam's great. She's a great teacher. Yeah. Yeah, Pam's, Pam's great. I, I can remember, actually, I think the first time I sat down with her was at um, the NABT conference in St. Louis. Um, and she sat down and she started talking like we had known each other for years. Um. <laughs> yeah, she has that effect on people. I love that about her. Yeah, she's great. So um, I'm going to ask the, the question I like to ask everyone uh, to start out, um, which is, how did you become a science teacher? Um, what led you into the classroom? Well, um, my path to teaching is probably not traditional. Uh, I'm sure most people aren't, but um, I actually was pre-med in college, and Mm -hmm. I wanted to be a physician. And I went pretty far through that process and took my MCATs and was all lined up to apply and everything. Um, And I was getting my letters of recommendation that you need to apply to med school, and one of the mentors that I had writing a letter for me um, was reading my personal statement that I had written for medical school and he pointed out that he said he thought I'd be a fine fit for med school but it sounded like I wanted to be a teacher because I had a lot of examples in there about some teaching experiences that I had had that I'd just done kind of as a job in college Um, But I never pictured myself in a teaching career, but apparently I used a lot of that as examples in my personal statement for medical school so that he kind of brought that to light for me and I reflected on it and ended up pursuing a master's in teaching after I had gotten my BS in biology. So you're you're all geared up. You've taken all these classes and then someone points this out to you. Um, 
was it was it an easy recognition for you? Was it one of those things where it was like a light bulb moment, or did you say, hmm, maybe I should start talking to some people or checking some things out or trying some, you know, dabbling in teaching with that on the forefront of your mind um, before switching gears away from med school? Well, um, I have to say in the beginning, um, it, it may just have been due to my immaturity at the time, but I, I was a little begrudgingly that I, I made the transition. My mom is a teacher and I always, I, kids grow up saying like, oh, I don't want to do what my mom does or what my dad does. And so I had that in my head. That, that she's a teacher. I didn't want to be a teacher, even though she's a fantastic teacher. She teaches uh, gifted education, um, mm. which I'm really interested in too now. Uh, but I, I, anyway, I didn't, I wasn't anticipating that was the path it was going to follow. And um, I didn't have to do a lot of trying it out because I had already done a lot of volunteering with her in her classroom. And I had taught, uh, I was a teaching assistant in the gifted summer school program before mm -hmm. I thought I wanted to be a teacher. And so I'd had some experience and just growing up with her, I kind of knew what it'd be like. Um, but yeah, it, at first it was kind of like, I didn't want to admit it. Um, <laughs> but, and I, I'm still interested in medicine, honestly. I mean, I may someday, I may transition careers and do something like that for a while. Um, but yeah, I, I kind of came to it in a non-traditional way for sure. All right. So uh, we mentioned Pam close first, you know, early on, and um, I know that you did your student teaching with Pam. So um, you've now gotten this, you've got this sort of advice from somebody who points out that you talk a lot about your teaching and you have your, your mother's example as a teacher, and then you go and work with somebody as amazing as, as Pam <laughs> to be your, your mentor teacher as you're going through your student teaching. How did that experience sort of inform the transition from potential teacher to getting your first classroom? Um, well, I think Pam was hugely influential in my, in just reassuring myself that that is what I wanted to do. I had a great experience in her classroom. And I, when I went into her student teaching, um, I went in with the expectation to, from uh, the expectation from my university was that we kind of observe and help once in a while and maybe help plan and teach a lesson, but we co-teach it. Pam gave me so mm -hmm. much autonomy that by the end of that semester I was teaching with her, I was teaching the lessons by myself. She would leave the room sometimes, you know, she was right there. Um, <laughs> but she, she really pushed me to, um, and I'm sure she was watching from the hallway or something, but she gave me the chance to spread my wings on that and really tried out on my own so that she was really helpful there. Uh, I've definitely put that in the high expectations category of a cooperating teacher in terms of she must have had had pretty high expectations for your input if she was going to turn the classroom completely over to you. And it wasn't right away. It was after she'd worked with me for a couple of weeks, but I felt like it was pretty quick. But in hindsight, I'm very glad she did that and it, it really helped me. Well, um, and I know, I mean, personally, I never had a student teaching experience. I <laughs> went out and interviewed for a job and oh, got man. hired. Yeah, it was, uh, I look back at it and I'm very fortunate that I worked in a department with a lot of veteran teachers who treated me like a student teacher, uh, even though I wasn't, you know, they, they really, they provided me a lot of resources and they gave me a lot of guidance and uh, my department chair was amazing. But 
it sounds like the the trajectory was that you had a sense and a feeling of what it was like to run your own classroom by the time you were done that student teaching experience. Yes, I would I would say she definitely gave me a taste of that. All right. And so how do you make the transition from that student teaching to Battle High School? Is it as simple as you just applied and this is the the place? Or what was your transition into your current job that you have? Well, um, it wasn't really as simple as just applying it to a different place. Um, because for one, the place was so, it's so different. Battle High School and Hickman High School are very different environments. Um, they both have mm-hmm. excellent things about them, but they're they're just different. And all all of our high schools are different. They have different culture, and I had to get used to that. Um, and I I chose to work at Battle High School, um, so I, I the culture was something that was important to me and still is. But it did take some getting used to, mm-hmm. and that part um, I'd say was a bigger transition than the actual teaching, uh, as well as just knowing that there's not someone there in the prep room uh, who could help you if you have to poke your head in. And I was all by myself with, I think I had 26 kids my very first class, my first year. And mm-hmm. I didn't feel very much older than some of my seniors. And uh, it was it was really scary. I, I do remember that. It took a lot of getting used to. Yeah. I I remember those years pretty well. One of the things that I, you know, I'd mentioned in the in the intro that you'd received those awards, you know, very early in your career, just just a couple of years in. And one of the things that came out in a lot of the the articles and a lot of the writings about those awards was that you were really invested in helping your students make connections beyond the walls of your school. And one of the stories talked about writing a grant so that you could have your students visit anatomy and physiology labs at Westminster College, which included a cadaver lab. So as you switch into this new culture, how did you identify like the types of experiences and and those types of things that you would want to invest your time and energy in to providing these for your students? Um, well, actually, that particular example you gave about the Westminster trips, we still do that. We've done that mm-hmm. every single year, and we actually have our trip this year scheduled for March 12th. Um, we're excited to go on, but that one, I got an idea from a a Hickman teacher that was one of Pam's friends, um, Noelle Gilzo. She taught anatomy and she did a trip to, I believe the university, uh, university of Missouri's cadaver labs that was similar. And she Mm kind of gave me the idea that that's a good student experience. And I got it rolling for our school and ended up using a different facility in college, um, and kind of changed the trip to fit our students' needs. But that one I've got to give her credit for, um, and at, over at Hickman. But I think as far as other experiences that I've embedded kind of in our learning environment in anatomy and biology, those were due to a lot of initial work at the beginning of the school year that I did with community building and just getting to know the kids. We spent a lot of time, almost a a frightening amount of time for a teacher um, with the amount of curriculum we have to cover. I spent a lot of time asking the kids what they wanted, what they needed, and where they were going in the future and things like that because I had no idea, I had no experience, and I think that really informed my my direction as to developing my own teaching style, including some of those things you mentioned. 
I'm, I, I want to hear more about this because I think as I hear you talk, I, I can think of the things that like me personally, I, it's taken me years to come to the conclusion that I don't, I shouldn't make assumptions about my students. <laughs> I think for a long time I had a view of sort of what my students wanted and what they needed. And it's only been through experience I've learned that I need to invest that community building time up front. So what is what does community building in your classroom look like? What kinds of activities do you engage in or what kinds of conversations do you try to have in order to get that sense and build that community with your kids? Um, okay, so I'll just give you an example that I use for anatomy. Hmm. Um, and it, it's a real simple thing that could be adapted to any course. But so we have a bag of bones that are, it's a disassembled human skeleton. Mm -hmm. um, they're plastic molds. So most of the bones in the human body have a partner, like your humerus. You have two humerus, you have two femurs, etc. So I spread out the bones on the kids' desks, and this is the very first day, often their first class of the year, and they come in and they sit down and there's a bone on their desk. And that's just kind of like a wow factor for them when they walk in. And they look at the bone, and then a few minutes into class, um, after some brief introductions of myself, I tell them to go find their bone partner, <laughs> which high schoolers think is really funny, um, of course, because they, they're high schoolers. Um, so they go, they find their bone partner, and this is usually someone they don't know because it's such a big school. I think we have 1,400 right now. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not sure the exact specs on that, um, but it, it's a big school, and a lot of them are transitioning from other schools and they don't know a lot of people so they go find their bone partner and then I have them have a five minute conversation with their partner which can be a really long time mm -hmm. for someone you have just met yeah especially for a kid and but with the intention and I tell them this ahead of time that you're not going to be introducing yourself like a lot of teachers will do an activity like that and then you introduce yourself I have them introduce their partner mm -hmm. so they have to really listen to what they're saying and I think that that helps with their listening skills and and uh, helps them bond with that kid and then they introduce them to the class and, the, and they are questions like why are you taking anatomy or biology what do you want to be when you grow up um, and then I throw in some atypical questions and it's it's kind of just formed around a traditional activity any teacher might do but I think the introducing each other element helps build some community and I've noticed those kids tend to continue their relationships throughout the school year. So that's just one example of something I do in the beginning. Yeah. So I, I love, I love the idea and I've, I've done some similar type activities, but I think of, again, sort of thinking of my own, my own process of having people partner up. That's a nice little introductory activity. And how do we continue that? You use the words almost frighteningly long time. You've taken first period, first class, you've connected. Do you continue to embed more sort of partnering type activities and community sharing type activities throughout the courses in order to really you know, highlight student voice, I guess would be the best way to think about that? Yes, um, I intentionally do that as much as I can. I'd like to do it more, um, but whenever the lesson allows, I will have them do just anything from as simple as a think-pair-share activity to um, more in-depth things they have to learn in labs. Like uh, in anatomy, they take each other's blood pressure and they listen for heart sounds. And to be able to put a stethoscope on another kid's chest mm -hmm. um, 
or handle their arm or apply a bandage. It's you have to touch them and you get closer than a lot of the kids are comfortable with. And to get to that point, we have to, I think that community building is, is vital. So I do a lot of that stuff really early on and it makes them really uncomfortable, but <laughs> the payoff is within weeks, they're comfortable with it as far as I can tell. And, um, kind of that initial awkwardness is, is over, but anatomy has a lot of things like that opportunities built in biology not quite as many so in that class I find myself using more of the think pair share activities and just other kind of wicker strategies that I'm sure are typical of teaching <laughs> cool all right I want to get back to what it's like to take high school kids to a cadaver lab what is that trip like and what are the what are the what's the students feedback and you know, what kind of things do you observe the students doing when they get to do this, I think, fairly unique experience for high school students? Okay, so I think that it's an awesome experience for them. And I've honestly, I can't remember. I'm sure they might not speak up, but I can't remember any kid that I've ever had the five years I've done this have any feedback other than positive on it. There were some mm -hmm. that said it was cool and that's all they said, but almost all of them have shining reviews of that that portion of the field trip because it's so novel to them and exciting um so i think the buy-in's really really high to begin with they don't all go into it confident it's totally a weird thing for them to think about seeing uh, they're so westminster they call it an anatomy lab and it's it's a teaching lab they have two donors uh it's usually a male and a female and they get those donated from uh university of missouri's gift of body program and uh, I think they have they have several dozen and, and Westminster gets two of them which is really cool because um, they're a smaller school uh, that they're able to get that and then they have their anatomy students do a semester-long dissection on those donors and so what we're left with when we go is a fully dissected cadaver um, that is still totally recognizable as a human and that is that's tough for kids and we have to do a lot of pre-teaching with it mm. to get them ready for it so for example this field trip is coming up in about a month and i've been showing my kids um a amazon prime uh series called anatomy for beginners where they do live kind of anatomical theater type dissections of real cadavers on screen and the kids see the face of the deceased person they see you know that they're they're a real person and they kind of get used to that and so we do some things like that we do a fetal pig dissection i have to do a lot of prep work to get them there but i've never had a kid show up at the lab and then turn around and leave and say they can't do it or they can't handle it and i'm always really proud of them for that but mm -hmm. i can tell it's it's scary for them um, and it's a big deal, but I think it's it's a really good experience. Wow, yeah, and I I love the fact that you your recognition of the, you know, the emotional challenge involved with this from the teenager standpoint, and then really using it as a a build up or to this this event to prepare them. Do you ever have students who have to like, you know, 
coach through the early stages like that are very hesitant or students who want to opt out or is this something that they know from the culture of being in this class this is part of it and even if they have hesitations they're still excited about it I think it's a little bit of both. Um, I definitely have some kids with some big reservations going into this, but usually since we do it in the second semester, those those hesitations they have have come up earlier, and I've had time to address them. We do dissections all year. Anatomy is a year-long course, so my first one's a couple weeks into school, and that's where I see the first uh, signs of those things. The kids who say, like, oh, no, I'm not doing that, and they walk out of the classroom, um, mm-hmm. which seems like a behavior issue at first but you just have to think a little deeper on that and it's it's just it's a problem for some kids and they don't I I try to recognize that they don't think about that stuff the same way I do and they may not have the same background experiences so pricking their finger and doing a blood typing lab may be traumatizing to one kid whereas I think of that as the norm so Mm. anyway I work up all year with that it's not like they're just thrown into cadaver lab a couple months into school, but they definitely have some hesitations on that, and I have had a lot of, usually it's been girls in the past, um, come into anatomy, find out that we have to do dissections, and tell me they want to drop the class, and I've never had one of those kids actually go through with dropping, because I've coached them through it, and Hmm. just worked to kind of build up their confidence and like it might be something like honor your first lab. We do like a heart, and there's no blood in it. It's it's preserved. Mm-hmm. I let them sit and watch. Their partner does the dissection. Really simple stuff. Actually, I, I misspoke. Our first dissection is a chicken wing, and it's oh, yeah. it's just a chicken wing from the grocery store. And so that usually is a really great transition. I feel like because they've all seen their parents cook, if not cook themselves. Um, and it's I I bring it in. It's just out of a Tyson tray of chicken wings so they can see it's nothing weird there's not a dead animal and then I have them dissect that with a scalpel and gloves and glasses to kind of get in the experience and I think that really helps them and they will refer back to that as one of their favorite dissections I don't know why but they love that and then we work up to it so that's just kind of an example of the progression for a hesitant kid um, I'll see a kid who wouldn't touch that chicken wing at the beginning of the year and then in March, that same kid, I have pictures of them holding a human brain in their hand with this like look of amazement on their face. And I just, they've come so far. And I, that's, that's always really inspiring to me as a teacher. Yeah. And I think that when you describe the kid, you know, walking out and, you know, maybe, or having those hesitations earlier and maybe reading them as behavior issues, the way you described it and the way you framed it really made me think about sort of the emotional toolbox a kid brings into class. That sometimes when, you know, they act out or don't perform, you know, the behaviors that we'd expect, it it's not because they're intending to be disrespectful or intending to do something negative. It's just they they're just kids. Right. <laughs> they, their emotions, their emotional toolbox is pretty small at that point. Right. Um so. one of my favorite quotes that's I'm not sure if it's really was intended to be about teaching at all, but it's that all behavior makes sense in context. And I just remind myself of that daily because whether it's an adult or a coworker or a, a student um, or a child or a teenager, that anything they do has probably a deeper reasoning than you're perceiving um, that mm-hmm. behavior. So I absolutely agree. All right. Well, we've talked a lot about your anatomy folks, but I saw, and maybe I'm wrong about this, but uh, I saw on your school, it looked like you were a one-to-one iPad model. Is that right? We were a one-to-one with iPads 
the year before last year. And now we're still one-to-one, -one, but we're with uh, computers. We have a, a laptop that it has a tablet function. You know, you can rotate the screen around and write on it. Um, okay. So it, kids still use that function a lot, but it's their laptops. Um, okay. Yeah, we so you've moved to a, a one-to-one laptop model, but you, you've been in a one-to-one model for a while. Yes, now. Um, since my first year there, every year that I was there, they they were one-to-one. -one. Yeah. So I was going to ask you about advantages or disadvantages of the model, but your entire career has been in a one-to-one -one model. I guess your only experience would be what it was like for you to be a student without one-to-one -one model, as opposed to being a teacher <laughs> where you've had it. I, I saw, you know, when I was looking through, you know, some of the the information, class information, that sort of stuff, there's a lot of norm setting about appropriate use of technology and that sort of thing. But how do you feel like the students have are handling the one to one model in your in your classes and and how are you able to sort of unlock the power of this technology? Um, well, I think they're actually they have grown up with it a lot more than mm -hmm. say you or I did in school. They start in Columbia Public Schools, they start kids with iPads in fifth grade. And mm. I'm not exactly sure the progression after that, but I know they're first exposed. They're exposed before fifth grade, but they get their own iPad in fifth grade and the responsibilities mm. associated with that. And so they've every kid that comes to high school has used a device before and is familiar, usually, as long as they're coming through the CPS system. So it's not so much a learning curve on the technology. They're always better than we are at that stuff, um, as I'm sure you know. But like you said, it's the, the behavior and the expectations about being responsible with that technology that presents um, new difficulties that I didn't learn a single thing about in teacher school. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's funny. You said that, like, that they're always better. But um, I have found in my experience that my students are really good. I have some students who are like amazing. Like they could take the whole computer part, put it back together. They know way more than me, but I find that like my average student and I do not have a one-to-one -one, uh, school. And so our students do get exposed to technology and we have a lot of Chromebooks and we do a lot of immersive stuff. But I find particularly my younger students, my freshmen and sophomores, they view technology that they use outside of school for social media and gaming and that sort of stuff to be a whole separate thing than technology for learning. And they don't see the, they see them as like almost two separate entities. Um, and their skill set of using technology in a problem solving content creation for academics sense is actually fairly yeah. weak when they start off. Oh, I would school. totally agree with that. Uh, so, I mean, I guess because you're in a school that's one-to-one, -one, the students are getting a lot of notes, though, of how to use it to generate content. Well, um, now that you say that, I mean, <laughs> that I kind of meant more in the sense of just navigating their way around a computer or when we had the iPads, because mm -hmm. a lot of them had iPhones and it's the same system um, and mm -hmm. apps and what you could do with a computer. They know a lot about that, about the abilities of a device. but. I would totally agree with what you said about finding information, uh, resources, and really troubleshooting. They're very mm. weak at troubleshooting. If something goes wrong, they won't even read the error box that comes up that says, you need <laughs> to close this program before you can run this one. They'll just raise their hand. They, I, I totally 
agree with that, that they have an issue with, with uh, kind of navigating the technology. They're different things. <laughs> You're right. Yeah. I, 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 as you said that, it reminded me of, I just last week, I had a student who was like, I forgot my pa- password. And I was like, if only there was a box um, yeah. <laughs> in front of you that said, forgot password, question mark. And they're like, oh yeah. And I was like, that's on every website that has a password. They're like, really? And I was like, yes, <laughs> pretty much everything that has that. And you know, this is a, this is a bright kid. This is a, a smart kid who does really well at stuff you know, in general, but you're right. The, the problem solving doesn't always come in. And um, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Cause I, I get frustrated and I account, I, I think I probably say to myself, Oh, the reason that my students don't do that is because we're not a one-to-one school, but it sounds like <laughs> you're in a one-to-one school and your kids have some of the same problem solving issues uh, when it comes to technology. I would say so. <laughs> All right. Do you have uh like, I don't know. Have are, are, is that something that you think is just going to come with time, or is that something we need to like dive in as teachers and like come to grips with? Oh wait, we need to have like some ways of helping them use this technology from a problem solving standpoint. Um, I think it's a combination of both. I think they will learn some of that with time and trial and error. But I absolutely think it would be beneficial to every kid to have some more technology training. Um, media center specialists at some schools, especially one-to-one schools like ours, that a lot of that falls on them. So mm-hmm. I have a kid who is having a trouble with a, the Microsoft OneNote program, and I don't have time to troubleshoot it for them or teach them how to troubleshoot it on their own. Even though I could probably figure it out, I send them down to the media center, and the media center specialist will either fix it for them, and they do a really good job actually about trying to show them the process as well so that next time that happens the student can solve the problem on their own and maybe even help appear with that issue and we rely mm. a lot on that on I'll say like well um, ask so and so they they know how to do this and they're pretty good about teaching to other kids but I think building that into the curriculum would absolutely be helpful um, I know I received a lot of computer training in school because computers were I guess newer. And I mean, we had a typing class and and everything. And there's no such thing as typing class anymore, at least in our kids. Uh, They don't, Hmm. they haven't learned that. So um, yeah, I think thinking about bringing some of that back in intentionally might, might be beneficial, but until then we just have to, uh, in every content class, we would have to try to build it in, into the curriculum and integrate it. Yeah. I'm wondering, as I, I have my 11-year-old, I was wondering what a typing class would be like that. You know, is it a two-thumb method now? It's not a, well. <laughs> it's not, not using all those fingers. It's, it's how fast can you get your two thumbs around those uh, touch yeah. screens. <laughs> hey, I, I use four fingers, so I'm up to four on my keyboard oh. on my computer. <laughs> Oh, on your keyboard. I was like, how do you text with oh, no. four fingers? I was like, I was like, I'm just as fast. I'm pretty fast with two thumbs for an old guy. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think I'm faster with the two thumbs on the phone than, than on the computer. I, I'm, I'm certain I'm faster with two thumbs on my phone than I am on a computer. <laughs> I did a lot of dictation in college. Um, I used Dragon and just audio dictated oh. most of my work. So that oh. gave me a disadvantage in learning how to type. But Yeah. 
I find if I'm like in a tunnel of writing lots and lots and lots, by the time I get to like, you know, the end of my giant curriculum document, I've worked, my hands have found back to the correct typing positions and I've gotten a lot of that better, but it's not where I naturally go for most of my typing. Yeah. (laughs) All right. So what we talked a little bit about, uh, you know, we actually I feel like we talked a lot about your anatomy and physiology groupings in particular. But I'm I'm curious about what you're looking forward to in the upcoming years in your classroom. And and maybe this is a good time to talk about some of the things in your honors classes or if there's anything in particular that you're excited about direction that you're working with your honors kids. But um, I don't want to limit you. So you can pick anything you want. But (laughs) but what are you excited about? Okay, so. Well, I'll have to use another anatomy example right now. I love biology, and I have a million examples for them, uh, but it just seems like this question is really just fits better with anatomy. Because I, <laughs> the reason for that is I have a lot more autonomy, curricular-wise, mm. in anatomy. I'm the only teacher, so and I, there's a curriculum coming um, with new standards, but right now there's not a set curriculum that I have to teach. There's no end-of-course exam. So... The difference between that and biology, biology, I have an end of course exam that's by the state. Um, Some years, you know, there's not one or it doesn't count, but in general, we've had one. And also there's there's a set curriculum that all of us in the district teach. And I also have peers, colleagues in biology. There's a team of six biology teachers. And we all teach the same class. So we, we have planning time together and stuff. Um, so I'm a lot more uh, a lot more limited in biology on going out kind of on ex- my own ideas and exploring my own ideas. Mm-hmm. My, our group's really great about taking in new ideas when we have them. But the f- simple fact is we have to get through so much more content and work as a team kind of in step that there's not quite as much opportunity for that autonomy as an anatomy, which is why I'm going to use that as an example. If that's okay. And then we can talk about that's all bio right. later. Yeah. You'll um, come back to bio afterwards. But yeah, if you're, I mean, the question is, what are you excited about? So if the thing you're excited about is an anatomy, let's talk anatomy. Yeah. Okay. So I, I'm not sure if this is actually going to flesh out the way I picture it. I hope it does. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have been slowly starting towards case-based learning in anatomy, like patient-based learning. And my idea for this, I actually got from my husband. So he's in medical school here at the University of Missouri. And um, he's in his third year. So I've been watching the way they learn at university med school for the three years he's been there. And they do something not unique to this school, but I think you'd have to fact check me. But I think Mizzou was the first PBL school. And PBL stands for uh, Mm -hmm. patient-based or problem-based learning. And mm-hmm. basically, instead of teaching lectures and curriculum all the time, they they get a patient case and they work through it and they learn the content as they're working through this this case of that was a real case of a person that the hospital had at some point. Um, so I took that idea, and I'm it's difficult to apply to high school because there's a lot of it's really multifaceted and deeper than mm-hmm. than I anticipated. But I'm trying to apply that, and so far the feedback from kids has been really great that they really enjoy it and the engagement is higher than I've ever seen it for any one type of teaching when I do that case-based learning I do it a little differently um in medical schools they give them like a paper about the team 
or about the about the patient and then they have a team of students sit down and kind of figure it out with a facilitator I do it a little more teacher-led I will go up and I'll have like a paper in front of me about a patient that I'm familiar with their case of and I walk into the room kind of in character as that patient and I tell the kids ahead of time what we're doing and then they have to elicit responses out of me I don't answer any questions that are really off script or off topic and I don't feed them anything I don't tell them like I'm a 34 year old male and I'm having abdominal pain they have to figure it out by doing by asking questions which teases out patient interview skills and all sorts of stuff that these kids are going to need when and if they go into the healthcare field like they say they want to um but anyway I'm excited about integrating that more into the classroom I do it probably five or six times a year right now but I'd love mm -hmm. to do it I'd love to do a case study with every unit I have 11 units uh, one for each body system and I'd like to be able to do an in-depth case study like that for every unit because the kids love it and some of the times I've been observed during those um, by our administrators they they look for things like how many what percentage of kids are engaged and I just remember this because it stands out to me. I had a hundred percent engagement the last time I was observed <laughs> during a case study, which is like, it's, it's not typical. That's not like, I'm not like bragging. That's not something that always happens as you know, in the classroom, it's usually way lower than that. But I had every kid in that class totally bought into the lesson. And that's what I'm excited about. Um, bringing in more of that. I'm hoping I can work with the med school here to get some direction on that and maybe uh, have them help and I'm sure they'd be an excellent resource um, but that's that's what I'm kind of working on right now and trying to trial run right this year yeah it, it sounds um it reminded me as you were talking about the approach I, I had multiple things flash uh one from like a practical standpoint um Chris Baker who teaches in uh, uh Horsham Pennsylvania who's an anatomy and physiology teacher he's also uh, an EMT who is a working EMT. And I feel like a conversation with him involved discussing some of this type of work, uh, case study style work and the engagement where students work through. So he may be a, he may be a resource that, um, I mean, he's super active on Twitter. I know that you have a Twitter account yes. and it's not super active, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but Chris Baker is definitely a guy who you may want to check in with because, and, and check out his, his blogs and, and stuff like that. Cause he's like a super, he, he's just an amazing anatomy teacher, but some of the conversations you were saying about the skills that he pulls out with activities and cases, I think his approach is a little different, but I haven't checked in with his anatomy classes in a couple of years, but okay. uh, yeah, definitely one of those things. And um, I did record with him early. He was in my first year or so. What, uh, what schools is he from? He's from uh, Horsham high school in Pennsylvania. Okay. I will look into that. Yeah, so we definitely want to check in with Chris. Um, I also had the the vision of, uh, as you said, standing in front of the room of uh, of Kramer from Seinfeld uh, going in as an actor, <laughs> acting out the scenes and and the, which was you know there. But also uh, the the TV show House. Like I think you could pull vignettes from that as well of you know patients and and that sort of thing. And I realized you know not the most accurate view of med school but i think that you know, when you look at different types of hooks uh, particularly as you're scaffolding and you're building up early on i could definitely see kids get excited about the idea of 
being able to unsolve a mystery yeah, uh, in that exactly. way. And I think that is the, that is the great aspect from the storytelling side of the TV, the, you know, the TV show is that it was a fundamentally a, a mystery show right. uh, wrapped around a, in a medical context. And I think that's the thing that builds them from an engagement standpoint. When I've pulled case studies from, you know, the, um, the Buffalo case studies that I've used with my kids, the ones that are, have a mystery component mm -hmm. are the ones that they want to come back to the most. Definitely. That's the motivation to keep them going. And I actually, it's funny you mentioned house. Um, you're right. It's notoriously medic medically inaccurate a lot of times, but um, <laughs> yeah. in college, I loved that show and I watched it all the time. And yeah. um, I think thinking back, that may have been a contributor to like why I came up with that type of curriculum because that interested me. And a lot of my teaching, I think about like, would I like this? Does this sound cool to me? Would I be interested? And then I try to apply that to the kids. And I think that actually was a pretty early influence on that style of uh, the motivation for moving through some tough, heavy anatomy curriculum is figuring out what's wrong with this patient at the end. And I, I did, I did have some some house times in college. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I, I mean, for me, that's one of those great things about teaching. Like if you, when you ever, you can bring in things that you're excited about. Um, and I can very much say uh, for me, I do that in my AP classes every year. Like we're always trying one or two new things and I don't need to tell the kids I'm excited about it. Like they know I'm excited about it. Like I'm looking forward to seeing how this lab works out. I'm looking forward to see, I'm, I'm just as excited to see their data you know, in those labs as they are, yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm the one who comes in and like, first thing I do is like, you know, I do a lot of microbiology stuff. So like I'm coming in and I'm like going to the incubator, <laughs> pulling out the plates and checking things out at, way before they come in. I want to know the answers to these mysteries as well. And I think for me, if I'm excited about something that translates in a way that, that nothing else can imitate that. Like you can't fake excitement if you generally are excited about doing something with your, with the students. Definitely, I think teacher passion plays a huge role in being a good teacher, and I think I think that's why I've been that's hugely why I've been successful in anatomy is because I'm really interested in the human body and medicine, and you know, in another life, I that's what I would have done, and like I love it, and the kids can tell, and I think that really helps. You're right. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, I for me when I was much younger, I one of the things that I remember I remember reading the really sort of the disease hunter type mm -hmm. books, you know, things like And the Band Played On, and you know, a lot a lot of things like where you like for me when I read And the Band Played On, the guys who were at the lab bench in uh, in you know the Pester Institute, the the lab scientists were the people that I connected with in that book and in that yeah. story, like beyond any of the other characters in in that it was the scientists in that and not even like the big name scientists it was like the people at the benches mm -hmm. <laughs> that were that were running the the labs and those types of things i found that and whenever i would hear stories about you know oh there's like an outbreak of greens with e coli on them in this place and like for me i was like the scientists who get to go there and run the tests and find out what the strain is and that like that's the that's the part of the story yeah, i want to hear about I, that for um, me that was the book the hot zone have you heard of that I oh, love yeah, that absolutely. book, and yeah. I actually even just last year applied for like a CDC training um, for teachers. I didn't get it, but because um, I think it was pretty competitive. But I would love to go do something with pathology and um, disease study. So I, I totally, totally yeah. agree with that. 
All right. So, uh, do you want to talk about biology? Like, you know, the 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 excitement. I always find it interesting when people talk about. The, I mean, I teach in a team. For us, with our biology teams, we sort of parse out by levels because we have a leveled system where I am. So I work with three other teachers and we have end of course exams and stuff like that. So we definitely have some parsing out of uh, of levels. And I mean, technically, I think we've got like nine biology teachers in my school because we're between 1800 and 2000. I think we're just under 1900 for the first time in a while. So we have like, you know, eight, nine biology teachers and we... We agree, but we're not really concerned about our end of course state exams just because of the school that we're in and how our students have historically done on them. It's not a driver. But the discussions you had about, you know, coming to a sort of team agreement and have those discussions is something we still do. And I find that there's huge advantages and disadvantages to doing that. Um, For me, the advantages are I have learned to try lots of things that probably I wouldn't have tried to teach if it wasn't for having to collaborate with other people. Um, I often joke that I would teach like three quarters of the year. It would be like molecular and micro (laughs) and I'd squeeze all the rest of the stuff in elsewhere. Cause like, I was like, I could teach everything through micro and molecular, but the reality is my students necessarily wouldn't get the greatest balance. And one of my other colleagues I work with, he's a, a big evolutionary biology guy, he would teach the whole year as evolution and then would like squeeze in the other concepts in a couple of the weeks, um, that sort of thing. So I think you do actually become a broader teacher in that regard. But I'm, I thought it's super exciting that you have like common planning with, with your group of biology teachers. Has that been a resource for you to, to learn new things? That has been a phenomenal resource. Um, that honestly, that planning time, I know that's not something that every school or district gives. And it, so we we have our on a block schedule, and um, mm-hmm. that means we have classes every other day. Like we have the same class every other day, uh, and it rotates. But we basically have eighty five minute classes, and we get eighty five minutes every other school day as um, PLC time with with that group, wow. and that and we use it almost all the time. We technically I think only have to meet once a week, but we meet almost every day that we have that opportunity. Um, you know, obviously, sometimes it's not curricular. Sometimes on the extra day that we're meeting, we are, you know, talking about stressors that we've had in the classroom or experiences and just kind of using it to collaborate and um, vent and stuff. But I'd say the majority of the time we're very productive with it and we do a lot of data-driven decisions and we look at assessment scores. We overhaul curriculum units and uh, assessments and I think like I would agree with everything you said about how it it pushes you to keep a balance of things that whereas if I was on my own I would kind of lean more towards whatever my teacher passion is and the kids might not get the uh, appropriate spread of curriculum but I'm very grateful for that PLC time we have at the school and that's that's one of the reasons um, I wanted to work at Battle was that they offered that. And as a brand new teacher, my first couple of years, that was instrumental in helping me develop as an educator. Because, um, hmm. you know, going from being in a classroom by yourself, but having that, they served kind of as a support team. And especially one of the teachers, uh, Pam's close friend, her name's Rachel Tinsley. Mm-hmm. And she's kind of the leader of our PLC. She um, really helped mentor me 
my first couple years. We had, a, I think we got three new teachers, me and two others, in the biology department that year that that I came. So it was, she was the only veteran teacher there, and everybody else yeah. was new. And so she really helped all three of us, um, and we're all still there. And I just, that I can't speak enough to that structure. I think every school should do that. Yeah, I'm this year. I'm only partnered with two other teachers for honors, but we have to play telephone um, wow. <laughs> because I have a common planning time with one of them and he has common planning time with the other teacher. So for the three of us to talk, it, we never the three of us don't have time off together at all. And I don't have time off with one of the other teachers at all. So we have no common time. So uh, fortunately, again, we're all we're all pretty veteran teachers. I think we 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 were joking the other day that like I think we have almost seventy years teaching experience uh, between the three wow. of us. Um, so we have the ability, and we've taught together for several years now. So we do have the ability to have those very shorthand conversations. But I do think that the pace of cult cultural change, like we sometimes will say, we really would like to do this thing, or we'd really like to work on improving this aspect of what our curriculum is, and things like that sometimes just fall through the cracks because without that common planning time, when it's fresh, it's, it's some things don't get done. And we come back in the next year and we're like, oh yeah, we didn't like this last year. Um, <laughs> well, it just fell through the cracks. Okay. Well, we'll make it a little better this year, but unless you individually sort of take something on and do a lot of work and then find time outside of the school year, you know, outside of the school day, either before school or after school or that sort of thing. It's really hard to make those kind of changes. And um, as a result, you know, it's, there's only so much time in the day and you only get to so many things. So I am deeply jealous of your <laughs> common planning yeah, time. It's great. And so. another thing we have is um, really good support from administration on approving professional development opportunities where we can collaborate together. Um, we ask mm -hmm. for a day or two every summer that they'll, in the past, they've paid us to come in during the summer and plan together and just imagine what you can do in an entire day with those people. That's mm -hmm. really helpful. Um, this last summer, we did something with the university, the University of Missouri, um, in their education program, and we spent over a week together developing a, new, a brand new unit. Uh, centered around vaping, which is a high school phenomenon. Um, yeah. And that was amazing. The, the buy-in kids had in that. And I, I, that is all due to just being able to hash out a unit together and have that kind of time. So I, there's things that teachers could do that would be incredible if we just had the time to plan together. And I see that. <laughs> Yeah. We actually, um, as you say that this year, because we are embarking on a brand new schedule next year, which is radically different from what we're currently doing. Um, so our current schedule, we have eight 45 minute periods every wow. single day. And that's different from previous years where we had eight 47 minute periods every day, no drop, no rotation. And I've taught in this building for 19 years and that's been the way we've been going. And we are we are embarking on this new schedule where we're going to only be meeting for six periods a day. Uh, we moved to a later start time this year. And so things are in the process of, of changing quite differently next year. But it also means that the length of time or periods are going to get longer, but we're also going to have drops next year. 
And so the impact on how does your curriculum flow is pretty radical. So our district has actually been going above and beyond in terms of those times. They're actually um, getting us sub days during the school year, and they're giving us release time within the school year this year to help us start that work and then also giving us some of that time during the summer as well in our district, they call it R and D time to do, but to do something exactly like what you said to work on sort of that curriculum things. I do feel like it's not as uh, useful as the designing new things. Uh, It's really sort of (laughs) more organizational. Uh, What we've done in our conversations is we've brought up a lot of the things that we didn't just say, Oh, we want to rearrange or we want to repackage what we do this year into this new form. We've had some things that have been on our checklist of, well, what if we did do some reorganization? And so we're going to try to do all of that at once and make some pretty large scale changes into how we sequence our biology next year and take on opportunity to take this time and really and really think about some things in a different way. So um, that will be exciting. Yeah, it sounds like it. that's a big transition to make. Yeah, it'll be if it if people don't flip flip out between now and the end of the year, it'll be great. <laughs> it's been it has definitely been a, a culture shock for people, but um, I think we've turned the corner where I think people are less freaked out about change because change is scary. Um, and but I think people are a little bit nervous about this is going to go live next September, whether we're ready or not. And and so people are definitely worried about that. I'm kind of a knock the apple cart over and we'll figure it out later. Um, kind of guy. So it's hard to rattle me in that way, but I can very much appreciate my, uh, a lot of my peers. Uh, stress. <laughs> All right. Before we get to some picks, let's, uh, let's ask, what do you do when you're not teaching? I think we alluded to it a little bit, but uh, what, what do you do when you're not, when you're not in the classroom? Um, well, when I have time for hobbies, um, yeah. I like dog training. I've been doing that for mm-hmm. about 10 years. I have two dogs called Belgian Malinois. Um, they're a relative of the German Shepherd, and they're not a German Shepherd. They're extremely high energy, high drive. Um, Mm -hmm. just for an example, I came home the other day and my dog was perched on top of a six foot bookshelf. Um, (laughs) since a 75 pound dog perched up on the top of bookshelf and the, the couch had a hole that you could see through from front to back. Um, so they have a lot of energy and with that energy, they work. So I've done some kind of informal training with search and rescue, uh, and human remains detection with my female. And I've really enjoyed that. And the dog enjoys it. I love that. So I do some dog training. Um, I do that for extra money during the summer too. I have a couple clients that I'll take and just kind of do that as a side business. Um, Usually it's other teachers or people that I've connected to through there, and I just do basic obedience. Occasionally some working dogs. I've worked with some police officers and learned more about that. So I really enjoy that. That's a hobby I'd like to flush out a little more if I had time. Um, I like to be outdoors whenever possible. We do hiking, pretty much everything we do. My husband and I, we bring the dogs. So it needs to be a dog-friendly activity. Um, hiking, fishing, boating, uh, just things like that. We like to get out and about, but yeah, mostly outdoor stuff. Yeah. I have an apartment dog, basically. Um, <laughs> she's a, she's a rescue. She's a Sato rescue. So she's uh, a lot of Chihuahua, oh. but, um, she's adorable. She's the sweetest. I, I used to, our previous dog was a half Jack Russell Terrier, 
half parts unknown, very, very smart dog, not the friendliest dog. I mean, she loved me, but really could take the rest of humanity could, <laughs> she would leave alone, but very, very smart dog. We would do some obedient stuff with her. Otherwise she would have made her own rules. But our current dog is super obedient, but just because she's so sweet. Mm-hmm. But if somebody broke into our house, she would want to be pet. Um, that would be the best way of describing her. She's exceedingly sweet, but yeah, dogs are amazing. And I know there's a lot of offshoots of dog training that you can get into as well. Oh, so, so many. I cool. did a whole PD, yeah. professional development, uh, one year in my early career on how teaching yeah. is like dog training. Um, at the time, <laughs> I was doing something called Schutzend, which is, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with it, it's a bite sport where you have mm-hmm. essentially a decoy, uh, a human, and they wear a suit uh, that's like Kevlar and very... Yeah cushiony you've probably seen it on tv and then the dog i've seen those bites them and we do that with our male um and like i love that but it's so it's so (laughs) high energy but it also brings in the obedience and the psychology of shaping a behavior that already exists in a dog a malinois already wants to bite you just have to shape it you don't retrain it um, and, and I take that to teaching a lot because the kids already, they already have the behaviors. They know how to not talk or how to sit or how to <laughs> behave appropriately, but you have to shape the behavior. And I think there's a lot of parallels yeah. between that and dog training. Yeah. <laughs> they don't like it when you like raise your hand up to make them sit though. They, uh, <laughs> yeah. if you don't, if you get, if you get kids in class who I've done that to a kid once before, um, <laughs> yeah, so they don't do well with hand signals. <laughs> I bring uh, um, I bring my dogs in a lot, so yeah. our our school's pretty friendly with with the dogs. And Kona is um, my female dog has been in the school a lot. The kids love her. One boy asked her to prom last year, so <laughs> they're pretty familiar with her in the room. That's great. Uh, all right. So before we get to picks the episode, do you have any questions for me? Um. Yeah. So how long have you been teaching? You you mentioned a while, significantly longer yeah. than me. Yeah, so this is, uh, I am uh, wrapping up my 23rd year. Wow, okay. And have you been at the same uh, level and subject that whole time? or? No, I, I, I went through a lot of transitions. So actually, I'm in my fourth school. I taught uh, my first year out, as we had mentioned earlier, I, I taught 80% at a school. I got hired, I think it was five days before the first day of school. Um, they needed a warm body and I was able to be that warm body. <laughs> and then uh, it was actually a really great place to be a new teacher from a like mentor and support position. Uh, but it wasn't a predominantly biology teaching job. And then they cut the job down from 80% to 20% at the end of that school year. And I just, you know, I couldn't live on 20% salary, at which point I went and took a job in another school, which was an all biology or predominantly biology teaching position, but for me was very isolated. It was too far away from my support network. It was not a good cultural fit for me as a teacher. It was, it was a, I learned a lot about myself (laughs) that year, um, but it was not, it was not something I could have done long-term. I often say if that was, that had been my first year teaching, I might not be a teacher right now because it was a, it was a really tough place for me to fit. And I felt I felt very out of place all year in that. So then I got a job very close to Boston uh, in a small school. And uh, that's uh, when my now wife and I got engaged and uh, we lived very close to the city and she was working in the city and I was working just next to the city. And it was a good pl- place for me to teach in terms of 
they were happy to have a competent adult in the building who wanted to work on their career, but they really kind of left me alone. And I did that for a couple of years, but it was a school that had a lot of turnover and there wasn't much in the way of mentoring and there wasn't really much. It was a pretty low ceiling about where I could see myself growing professionally in that place. And at the end of that first year, I had some people who pointed out to me that I wasn't teaching biology there as my predominant thing. And that's what I am, a biology teacher. And I didn't see how I was going to really become the teacher I really wanted to be at that building. And so at that point, I basically said, all right, time to really find your like forever job. And that's when I moved to Acton. And that was... 19 years ago. So wow. <laughs> it was a, it was an interesting path and it was definitely a different time. <laughs> Just to give a sense, I never had a school email at any of my first three jobs. Wow. Uh, so just to give a sense of sort of the time and place. Um, and they were just rolling out teacher emails. Those like, I think it might've been my, it was, it may have been my first year, but it was either my first or second year at Acton. They were rolling out, uh, they were rolling out teacher emails. So it was uh, definitely a, a different time to be coming in where the technology piece was coming in. And I think the career just looks and feels so different now um, in a lot of good ways. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Oh, and then my other question for you, I'm going to throw one back at you that you asked me just because I'm curious. Yeah. Um, what's something that you are excited about in your upcoming year or this year? Oh, so many things. Um, <laughs> so many things. Uh, what am I looking at? So I'm I'm on February break right now. Um, this nice. this is it's weird. Yeah, in Massachusetts we have a February and an April break. Yeah, we don't also get out until like late in June. Oh. So that's sort of the trade off of it. Uh, we start late, but um, in there. But during this week, um, I've been sitting down with a couple of projects that I've been personally working on that I haven't had a chance to like. You know, you don't have really six hours you can ever dedicate to something right. during the during a school day uh, kind of thing. So actually, uh, I have been working on something that I've been referring to as a ladybug project on my social media, where we I've been working with some teachers in California and a lab in Berkeley on looking at cold coma recovery and how beetles respond to environmental shifts and it's got a lot of cool curriculum ties to uh, evolution and climate change and some really neat lab aspects and stuff that could apply to anything from an intro bio class um, some of the california people are working on that up to an ap level biology class um, and i'm working on some of the molecular stuff about that so um, i am really excited about learning more about the molecular story about why different insects respond to environmental conditions differently. Um, and so I've been reading like deep literature, like I have journal article in front of me right now next to me <laughs> that's from uh, the proceedings from the Royal Society of Biology that's all about these molecular variants that exist in different creatures. And uh, I, I'm just excited about the complexity of this and the challenge of turning this complexity into something that's going to be coherent for a 15, 16, 17-year-old. That sounds really cool. That kind of reminds me of like some of the stuff that happened during the eclipse where we were looking at the insects and their behaviors. Did you guys think about yeah. that at all? Yeah. yeah, we weren't prime enough for the... It didn't really hit oh, us. Right. Um we were just a little too far north for it. Um, although the next one that's going to come through 
we're going to get a bigger piece of. Oh, it's amazing. Um, Hopefully you'll have school that day. It was, we had like a several minutes of absolute darkness. It was really cool. We had it yeah. during the school day. We brought every kid outside. It was amazing. So. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to be, I mean, we're not, I think the closest it's going to come to us is, is about five or six hours away, but we'll have a pretty significant eclipse here next time it cuts cool. through. Uh, cuts through the United States. So yeah, I remember seeing that it's, it, but it's, it's been very fascinating because it's, you know, it's, I don't get a chance to do, um, you know, I fundamentally think of myself as somebody who could sit at a lab bench and work at a lab bench every day. I mean, I love teenagers and I love the work I do, but I could just as easily be pipetting and working at a lab bench every day. So I get very satisfied when I get to start going through journal articles and then asking myself questions and finding out things I don't know. And this week I've been kind of excited about how dumb I felt <laughs> as I've been reading these articles because I have, I have like this just page of questions and then like going through these searches and going through these literature. And I'm going to be sending an email off to, you know, the, the lab that I've been working with um, that I'm, I'm trying to solve two problems. I'm trying to solve a molecular story. Like how do you do these molecular labs in the classroom and get like bands on a gel and, huh. and get that like to work but there's a deeper story of coherence and how do you package this into a way that will make some sense to teenagers. And I've realized all of these gaps in my own individual knowledge that I've had to fill out and I'm starting to get a better picture of what that looks like now. Um, and so that I'm, I felt very stumped about this a couple months ago and I'm starting to feel really excited about what it's going to look like now. That sounds really cool. So, yeah. So, and uh, maybe at next year's NABT, uh, we'll be, we'll be presenting. Um, hopefully. Hey, look forward to it. <laughs> so, all right, we have gotten to picks of the episode, and uh, Jordan, uh, being right on theme, you picked something for anatomy and physiology. So, what's your pick? Um, okay, so I actually changed my mind from what we talked about originally because I remembered something cooler okay. that applies to biology and anatomy. Um, cool. So, that summer workshop I told, I think I mentioned earlier that we did with the university. Uh, where we had a whole mm -hmm. week and we worked on a, developing a vaping unit. So that comes from a program called RI-squared, which stands for Rigorous Investigations of Relevant Issues. And it's a Mizzou uh, University of Missouri team in the education department. And basically they are researching and working on issue-based teaching and learning. So um, the vaping is an example of that on because that's kind of a social issue right now um, e-cigarette use and there's about a dozen other ones on this website they've created a website where they have the entire module um, for these mm -hmm. the, we call them socio-scientific issues and they they just focus around the science but they also address the social component and you do things in these units like stakeholder activities and uh, how what the social effects would be of policy changes and things like that. Um, genetically modified food, I'm sure you can picture how that would be a social issue. But the whole idea is bringing mm -hmm. the social issue into science to increase buy-in and um, student retention of material. So I'm really excited about that. I plan to try some of these other units. We've done two of them so far. We did the vaping unit, and then we did um, we took our entire unit that was previously about ecology and photosynthesis and respiration, which was kind of, it was three mm -hmm. units and it was a low buy-in, low student interest section. And we turned it into a unit called Mars. 
and it's all about should we or should we not use taxpayer money to colonize Mars? And that was the social issue. And we framed it around that, and kids were standing up and shouting in debates about uh, how passionate they were about this issue. Because, uh, you know, you can imagine there's there's both sides of it. And really, that's the only thing required to pick an issue is that you pick something that has different opinions. It's not just something that's like open and closed. Um, but yeah, mm -hmm. I, this is a really cool website and there's a lot of modules on there. It's, it's still kind of young um, and it's in development and they have grants for it and they're working on it. But I've been pretty heavily involved in that this year. And so is our whole biology team. And it's, there's one on Alzheimer's disease. I plan to use an anatomy. Um, so it can be applied to any life science, I think middle through high school and would be an awesome research resource to share with other teachers. That's very cool. I'm going to definitely check that out. Yeah. It's All right. ri2.missouri.edu. Ri2. Um, ri2. All right. I will definitely add that into and the I show And I think notes. our unit, our vaping unit, is going to be published on the website as soon as they finish it um, this <laughs> this year. Cool. All right. Well, my pick of the episode is um, something I've seen. I actually heard it on both Science Friday and I heard it on another podcast. Um, and then I started playing around with it. And it's called uh, What Will Climate Feel Like in 60 Years? Um, and so it's a website where you can plug in any location and really it's major cities. They didn't, I tried to like put in like the town I teach in, which is not big enough, but I could put it in Boston. And you put them in and you can then toggle for high emissions projections and low emissions projections and different components of that and get a, a, a line from the location that you're putting in and what the climate will most likely be 60 years from now under the various scenarios. Wow. So for example, uh, the high emission scenario uh, for Columbia's climate um, in 2080 will most likely be near a climate near today's Prosper, Texas. So a typical summer in Prosper, Texas is uh, 7.3 degrees Fahrenheit warmer and 26.5% drier than current summers in Columbia. And then for high emissions in Boston in 2080, it will feel more like Roslyn, Maryland. And they did a winter comparison. And again, 7.7 .7 degrees Fahrenheit warmer in Boston and 15.9% drier. So it, it, it literally gives you an opportunity to see sort of how far on the map the climate is going to shift wow. over 60 years under these different scenarios. And it's a, it's a, it's a really kind of cool interactive. I don't know what it means. As I said, my headspace has been along this climate change and ladybugs <laughs> kind of piece. So I could see maybe using something like this with my students, you know, next year to talk about, you know, what are the pictures are. And um, I started really talking about climate change with my students for the first time this year, and they were able to generate a lot of questions. And so I'm still building out my, competency in this area to provide opportunities for them to think about it in a way that isn't just abstract, like a certain number of degrees C, but more something that will have a, that they can sort of visually put in their mind, oh, this is what it means. Um, and uh, this, I thought this website was super cool. It is cool. I'm looking at it. It's, it's the University of Maryland, it looks like. Yeah. Um, but I, I can totally see that being tied into the ladybug. Uh, 
unit, just kind of how that would affect maybe like migrations or just populations. That would be really neat to look into. Yeah. Yeah, that looks cool. Yeah. All right. Well, Jordan, thank you for meeting with me and, and being part of the show. Uh, it was a great conversation. I, I feel like I got to reflect on a lot and I learned a lot in this conversation. Yes, me too. Thank you so much. All right. So let me give my credits. Please subscribe to this podcast. Life of the School podcast is found on any pod player of choice. So, you know, we're on iTunes, we're on Google Play, we're on Stitcher. I know Podbean and some of the others as well. You can become a Patreon and go to patreon.com slash lots and a dollar or two a month helps offset my costs of hosting a website and posting media and that sort of thing. I also post my episodes out a few days early for my Patreons. Uh, music for this and every episode is provided by X Magicians and Jake Jenkins. Show notes are also available on lifeoftheschool.org. And you can follow me on Twitter at Mr. Matthew Tweets or at Life of the School. Uh, Jordan is on Twitter, but barely. Uh. <laughs> I, I'm working on it. I'm going to try to get more presence. Yeah, I'll maybe add, I'll add your, uh, I'll add your Twitter handle into the show notes. So thanks for all for joining me and I will talk to everybody soon.